I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at Genesis chapters 8 through 11. In Genesis chapter 8, we find the account of the flood, beginning with verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, And he sent forth a raven, which went forth to and fro, until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him, to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned to him into the ark. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand, and took her, and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again to him any more. And it came to pass in the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seven and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. We find the first details of the flood in Genesis chapter 7. One year and ten days on the ark with a bunch of animals. Well, it beats the fatal swim that everyone else got, of course. A raven and three dove flights later, they get the go-ahead to disembark from the ark. In my written notes for today's reading, I've provided a chart that shows... Uh, the timeline for the flood itself, what happened on which day, uh, and so forth. Is it not interesting that Noah and his family stayed on the ark for 84 days after the land appeared dry? That in itself constitutes an act of faith. How many would have reasoned that, well, if it's dry outside, why not go ahead and get out right now? It's worth noting the difference in the expressions between verses 13 and 14. We are told in verse 13 that on day 283, quote, the face of the ground was dry. But in verse 14 we're told, and I quote again, was the earth dried. So the Hebrew word used for face there is usually a reference to a human race. It's likely that verse 13 expresses the mere appearance of the surface, while verse 14 declares that all conditions are now safe. However, they waited for God's command to leave. Come to think of it, 
They may not have had a choice but to stay on the ark for those additional 87 days. According to Genesis 7.16, before the 370-day odyssey began, it specifically says, And the Lord shut him in. Since God had shut them in, one might very well assume that no one leaves until God actually lets them out. So we see them off the ark in Genesis chapter 8, beginning with verse 15. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. In this passage, God instructs Noah to take his crowd, the people that were with him on the ark, and the animals, and leave the ark. Everybody departs and touches dry land for the first time in over a year. Now the first order of business is an altar and a sacrifice. We begin reading now in verse 20. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. The first order of business after departing the ark is to make an animal sacrifice. As a matter of fact, that's why we needed the extra clean animals we saw up in verse 20. Noah had been directed to load onto the ark those extra animals back in Genesis chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Hmm, animal sacrifice. Have we seen this done before? Well, notice Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. I'd say there was some sacrifice involved there, but Adam didn't do the actual sacrificing. God did. And in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it's likely, but not specified per se, that Abel placed his offering of the firstlings of the flock and the, the fat thereof, on an altar before God. However, here we see Noah literally building his own altar and making a burnt offering of the clean animals. Today some would exclaim, Hey, Noah, that's no way to treat an animal. What was God's reaction to this slaughtering of these innocent animals? Well, there's your answer in verse 21. It says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. The Hebrew word for burnt offering here is olah. This offering became a formal part of the Mosaic Law. This is the first usage of Olah in the Old Testament. Now, notice the guarantee God gives after Noah makes his burnt offering sacrifice in verses 21 and 22. This is regarding the destruction of the earth. The guarantee from God is plain in verse 21. It says, Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. That's right, no more worldwide destruction of the earth, period. 
In this context, God speaks directly about the flood in chapter 9, verses 11 through 17, which we're going to be looking at well, right now. The Noah covenant is seen in these first 17 verses, beginning now with verse 1, chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Wow, now this is a very significant passage of scripture. We're looking at the establishment of a covenant with Noah. This covenant begins with God's promise in verse 22 when he says, following, Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. We know this as the Noah covenant, obvious, right? I mean... Noah covenant. Genesis 9 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Now, does that sound like a command to you? Well, we'll see in Genesis chapter 11, in just a few moments, the significance of this verse is man declined to replenish the whole earth. Instead, they chose to stay in one locale. Verse 6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God made he man. Here's the foundational statement regarding capital punishment. The Mosaic Law would later add much detail upon this foundation. Then, beginning in verse 8, we see the establishment of an unconditional covenant between God and man. Now, an unconditional covenant is one that God keeps regardless of what man does. 
So for perspective, let's list the provisions and requirements of what we call the Noahic Covenant. First of all, it was be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. That's seen in verses 1 and 7 of chapter 9 here. Secondly, no more vegetarian diet, seen in verses 2 and 3. They did start out as vegetarians in Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. Thirdly, no eating blood in Genesis 9-4. Fourth, personal accountability for loss of life. Here's the first mention of capital punishment in verses 5 and 6. Then God promises no more global floods, seen in verses 9 through 11 and verse 15. And then lastly, the rainbow was given as a token of the covenant in verses 12 to 14 and also 16 and 17. The Jewish Study Bible has an interesting note found um, regarding verses 8 through 17. Uh, let me read that to you. In the Talmud, it is taught that descendants of Noah, that is, universal humanity, are obligated by seven commandments, and these are, number one, to establish courts of justice, number two, to re refrain from blaspheming the God of Israel, as well as, number three, idolatry, number four, sexual perversion, number five, bloodshed, number six, robbery, and number seven, not to eat meat cut from a living animal. Whereas Jews have hundreds of commandments in addition to these seven, traditionally 613 laws, what the Jews observe, Gentiles who observe the seven commandments of the descendants of Noah can meet with God's full approval. Now, you might find uh, these seven items that have been extracted and, and uh, called the Noahic Covenant, as far as the Jews are concerned, as far as observant Jews, you might find those a little bit obscure and difficult to extract from that passage. But here's what observant Jews today regard with regard to the Gentiles and their approval or acceptance before God. They, they call these the Noahide Laws, and they say that any Gentile who meets the specifications of these seven issues that are extracted from the covenant that God made with Noah, meet with God's full approval. They fully acknowledge that the law of Moses is for Jews and not Gentiles. So again, the Jews regard that the Gentiles only need to observe these seven items in order to find full approval with God. Verses 11 to 17 deal with the token God gave for the accompanying provision that the earth would never be destroyed by flood again. Actually, we saw in chapter 8, verse 21, that it was declared that the earth would not be destroyed in its entirety by God's judgment by any means. But the immediate interest here is, of course, the flood. Hence, the rainbow becomes the token of that covenant. The rainbow wasn't just a decorative touch placed there by God as a token. There was a functional reason for it. Consider the following with regard to the token of the rainbow. The firmament of Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, was created to divide the waters from the waters. This firmament divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. The earth was engulfed with a canopy of water in the beginning. There was no rain before the flood, according to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. The earth was watered by a process of evaporation and condensation between the water on the earth and the water above the firmament. 
in Genesis chapter 7 verse 11, we are told that the windows of heaven were opened. Specifically, that means that the canopy of water above the earth began to disintegrate and continued to do so for 40 days. Add that to the fountains of the great deep, the water under the surface of the earth, that were broken up, and you have a lot of water suddenly being dumped on the surface of the earth. So consider this. While the canopy of water was in place over the earth, the earth was never exposed to direct rays of sunlight. It was always diffused by the moisture comprising the canopy. But after the flood, the canopy of water over the earth was gone. Now direct sunlight did, in fact, make it all the way to the surface of the earth. Rays of sunshine refracting through pockets of moisture, well, that's what creates rainbows. With the canopy gone, rainbows were possible. The rainbow was a sign that the canopy of water had collapsed, causing the flood, and that canopy no longer existed. Hence, no more floods were possible as long as rainbows were visible because rainbows were not possible until the canopy of water was actually removed. As an aside to this discussion, you'll notice that lifespans began to shorten after the flood. Some have speculated that it had been the canopy of water diffusing the harmful effects of the sun on one's body that permitted extreme longevity while it was in place. Well, that sounds like a viable theory to me. Then we have an unfortunate incident in chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, and laid it upon their shoulders, and went backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years. And all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died. Well, in this passage we see that Noah had a little too much to drink from his vineyard. His son Ham went into Noah's tent and saw him uncovered. He went to tell his brothers Shem and Japheth. They backed into Noah's tent and covered him up. When Noah awoke, he was outraged over what Ham had done, seen him disrobed. So he passed out some cursings and blessings, a curse of Ham's youngest son, Canaan, and a blessing on Shem and Japheth in verses 25 through 27. Incidentally, this curse of this passage was used as the basis for slavery in the early foundations of the United States of America by the proponents of the practice. It was taught back at that time that this curse meant that the black population of the continent of Africa, being Ham's descendants, were preordained to be servants by this curse here by Noah. 
Many slave owners in early America had a sincere, abiding faith in God and the Bible. However, their doctrinal basis for slavery was misguided based on a skewed teaching of Scripture. Here's the real story. Canaan was the only one of Ham's sons who was actually cursed according to verse 25. Why? I don't know. There was no curse on his other sons, the sons who actually migrated into Egypt and then into Africa. The land of Canaan should sound familiar to you. We see in Genesis chapter 10 verses 15 through 19 that this is where the descendants of Canaan actually landed after the flood. It was the land that became Israel's homeland later on. This curse, whatever its generational reach, applied only to Canaan, not to the whole line of Ham. Perhaps this curse was a single generational curse, but if it did apply to successive generations, we see in Joshua's conquest of the land of the Canaanites hundreds of years later that these descendants of Canaan became the servants of the Hebrews when they conquered the land. Incidentally, some have elaborated upon the scenario of Ham's sin in this passage to make his deeds much more sinister than actually stated in the passage. Was his shortcoming, Ham's shortcoming, only that he saw the nakedness of his father? Was there any more involved than that? Well, it's actually impossible to know. All we see here is that the actions of Ham are contrasted to the actions of his two brothers. Anything beyond that is just mere speculation. Well, we see in this passage that after 950 years, Noah died. In chapter 10, we have a chapter of genealogies. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripha, and Togarma, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. By these were the isle of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families in their nations, and the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mezraim, and Phut, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabtika, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kauna, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth, and Kala, and reason between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludum, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Naphtuhim, and Pothrusim, and Kasimhim, out of whom came Philistim, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zimorite, and the Hamathite, and afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. 
And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboam, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, and their countries, and in their nations. And Shem also the father of all children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram, and the children of Aram, Uz, and Hull, and Gether, and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber, and unto Eber were born two sons, the name of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Almodad, and Sheleph, and Hazer Maveth, and Jira, and Hadoram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling was from Mesham, as thou goest into Sephar, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. I'll be the first to admit that that was not very exciting reading there in chapter 10. This is one of those chapters that gives us perspective, you know, who begat whom. Let's make just a few observations here. First, notice that everyone on earth is descended from one or more of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In verses 8 through 10, we see the birth of the troublemaker of chapter 11, Nimrod, the grandson of Ham through Cush. It would appear that he was a fierce fighter and exercised dominion over others. Here's another interesting note that's stuck into verse 23. We are told that in one man's lifetime, the earth was divided. That man is Peleg, the great-grandson of Shem. It is commonly held that in the years following the flood, the contents of the earth were divided by the waters of the oceans. While secular scientists believe this division happened over an extended period of time, it would appear that the initial division took place while Peleg lived. It does make sense that some significant land settling must have taken place after the waters receded. I'm convinced that this was the natural result of the earth's recovery from the upheaval caused by the flood. Incidentally, today's secular scientists commonly hold that the continents are still drifting in relationship to each other. It should be noted, however, that many scholars believe that verse 23 refers to the scattering of chapter 11 verse 9 and not the actual drifting of the continents. There's an article that I've referenced to the Institution for Creation Research that has more on this issue, go to the written notes on uh, BibleTrack.org for today's reading and click on that link. In chapter 11, we have the infamous Tower of Babel, beginning with verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. They said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. They said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. 
And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now God did give a command to Noah back in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, and it was to his sons also after they exited the ark back then, he told them to replenish the earth. Their descendants did not do so. They stayed together in one spot on the earth. We see that in verse 2. And they all had a common language. From chapter 10, we deduct that Nimrod, who was a descendant of Ham, headed up this venture to build a tower that would provide a common bond to the people and keep them together under one kingdom. Well, what exactly was the structure that they attempted to build? Verse 4 gives us a hint, but not a clear answer when it says, Let us build us a city and a tower whose top, and it says, may reach unto heaven. In the King James Version, the words may reach are italicized, indicating that they were added for the purpose of supplying a verb that does not necessarily exist in that phrase in the Hebrew. In my opinion, many have read way too much into this verse, adding their own verb combinations to make it everything from a tower that could climb up to God's abode to a structure that displayed the signs of the zodiac on its dome. Well, here's the real point. It was a city and a monument to organize a rebellion against God's command to populate the earth. Look at the last part of verse 4 to see their motivation for building the structure. It says, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. In short, God said, replenish the earth. The people said, we're staying right here. And what was the name of the city? Well, Babel, of course. The Hebrew word for Babel is Babel. As a matter of fact, it's the exact same word translated Babylon later in the Old Testament. In the book of Revelation, it's the Babylon transliterated from the exact Greek word of Revelation chapter 18. Since its first mention as Nimrod's base of operation in Genesis chapter 10 verse 10, it's always been the epitome of a city in rebellion against God, Old Testament and New Testament. As they embarked upon this project, God confounded their language, causing them to disperse over the earth. After they gathered with people who spoke their own newly acquired common language, the continents drifted apart to form separate land masses. We saw that happen in the lifetime of Peleg in chapter 10, verse 23. When we look at the genealogical record of chapters 10 and 11, we see that the descendants of Shem basically traveled east and settled on the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula. The descendants of Japheth, northwest into Europe, and the sons of Ham, southwest into Egypt and Africa. Incidentally, were all related to at least one of the three sons of Noah. Since this continental separation took place after the confusion of the tongues, it's logical to assume that the intermarriage between the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth took place prior to the continental separation. This obviously accounts for the unique physical characteristics of more than three races of people. 
Likewise, it stands to reason that after the separation of the continents, certain physical traits would then have been accentuated over the centuries that followed as they only married others with similar physical characteristics. Then we find, beginning with verse 10 of chapter 11, more genealogies. Verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad 500 years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived 530 years and begat Selah. And Arphaxad lived after he begat Selah 403 years and begat sons and daughters. And Selah lived 30 years and begat Eber. And Selah lived after he begat Eber 403 years and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived 430 years and begat Pelig. And Eber lived after he begat Pelig 430 years and begat sons and daughters. And Pelig lived 30 years and begat Reu. And Pelig lived after he begat Reu 209 years and begat sons and daughters. And Reu lived two and thirty years and begat Sirig. And Reu lived after he begat Sirig two hundred and seven years and begat sons and daughters. And Sirig lived thirty years and begat Nahor. And Sirig lived after he begat Nahor two hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah a hundred and nineteen years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived seventy years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren, she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came into Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Well, here's the significance of this genealogical record. It's the family tree of Abraham, called in this passage, Abram. As a descendant of Shem, his ancestors had settled in Ur, a city located in the southeastern part of the current-day Iraq. We see in this passage that his father, Terah, took the family and migrated northwest to Haran, a city close to the border of current-day Turkey and Syria. We'll see in Genesis chapter 12 that God led Abraham southwest from Haran to the land of Canaan. Incidentally, Abram's father, Terah, began this move to Canaan according to verse 31. They traveled along the Euphrates to get there, a trip which led them to Haran, where they settled. It would not have been feasible to head directly west across the mountain range to go to Canaan. Abraham finishes the trip to Canaan from Haran in Genesis chapter 12. Altogether, through Haran, the trip to Canaan would have been approximately 1,500 miles. As for the religious affiliation of Terah, notice the comment Joshua makes about Terah and Abraham's ancestors in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, where he says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, 
the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Prior to Abraham, his people were polytheists. As a matter of fact, the evidence suggests that the relatives back in Haran remained polytheist. When we see Laban with his idols, remember the ones that Rachel lifted, in Genesis chapter 31. Jacob decides it's time to leave Laban and head back to Canaan at that point in time. One more thing, did you notice how lifespans had decreased compared to the genealogical record of Genesis chapter 5? What's up with that, you might ask? Well, two notable things are different at this point in contrast to Genesis chapter 5. First of all, that canopy of water engulfing the earth disappeared after the flood. Refer back to that Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 note. Perhaps uh, that had previously offered some protection from harsh environmental effects on the body. We don't know for sure, but it seems feasible. Secondly, their diet changed in Genesis chapter 9 verses 2 and 3. It didn't happen immediately after the flood. It took a few hundred years of gradually decreasing lifespans before they began to fall into the range to which we're now accustomed. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.